You're listening to the Just Giants podcast with Grump and the Cranky Fan. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud today. Welcome back to Just Giants with Grump and the Cranky Fan, the best damn podcast for the best damn football team. I'm your host, the Football Grump, and with me, as always, back from vacation, is Mike, the Cranky Fan. Ciao, bellissimo! Knock it off, douche. (laughs) I had a great great couple of weeks over on the other side of the pond, uh, where nobody cares about the NFL. Uh, One thing was interesting, though, we were deep in the heart of Malta and there was a small little fishing village where they're selling knickknacks, you know, like wooden boats and, you know, all sorts of tourist shit. And they were selling towels and the one towel that they were selling were New York giants towels. So no other team. Per- huh? Apparently in Marsha Slock, Malta, the New York giants are very popular <laughs> or they're just pandering to the American tourists. One yeah. of the two. <laughs> Mike was on vacation last week. We thought we'd be clever and post two episodes in a row or record two episodes in a row and that nothing major would happen in between the one week we couldn't do the show. And I think about maybe 24 hours passed before a dead body was found in Norris Jenkins' basement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's the thing is immediately, you know, in this – Hyper quick world of everybody, you know, on social media. Immediately, Janoris Jenkins is a murderer. Amazing. Immediately, it's another Gator did this. So I cut all the shit and everything. But <laughs> yeah. you know, take five seconds to let some facts and some information get out before, you know, something of this magnitude happens and you stained a person. And Janoris Jenkins had basically nothing to do with it, other than the fact that it was in his house. He was in Florida the entire time after OTAs. So. You know, and everybody wants to be cute with their memes and stuff, but let's just be real. Yeah, and it's actually kind of a sad story for him when you think about it. I mean, forget forget the fact that he gets lambasted on social media for things, but he's he's in a situation now where a very close friend of his is dead forever, and his brother is going to prison for a very long time. Yeah, I mean, I. I ripped on Jenkins pretty hard when he was at Florida and I got rid of him for being a punk and everything. But, you know, these guys live in a different world than a lot of you people who listen to this podcast live in, you know, different uh, socioeconomic situation that you may live in. And they're used to or have to deal with issues like this that are unfortunately far too more common than we deal with. So you're right. He's a fact that now he has a friend that's dead. He has a brother going to jail probably forever and, you know, all the other things he's had to come up with. So. Just because these guys make millions of dollars, don't think their lives are easy or they can escape very easily, you know, where they came from. Yeah, too true. Well, it, it, you know, in, in good news for, for Giants fans, this has nothing to do with Janoris Jenkins and he will be eligible to play. You know, there should be no suspension looming from any of this. He's not really a subject to the investigation or anything. So uh, for fans, this is sort of a sigh of relief. I know it was for me anyway. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, it's just a terrible thing. You don't want a guy, you know, forget, you know, who's our cornerback. Just, you know, the guy might spend the rest of his life in jail or, you know, or just be associated like, you know, someone like Ray Lewis, who, you know, was associated with a murder the rest of his life. There's going to be scumbags like me making fun of him (laughs) every time something. So, 
but that's something you don't want to attach to your name, whether you're involved or not. So, yeah, it's just a sad situation. And, uh, you know, we will never know the facts of what really went on. But, uh, you know, it's it's tough for his family. Yeah. And and it just goes to sort of our offseason theme. You know, we like to talk about the draft and free agents and, you know, get hyped up on the season and do season previews. But that's all to fill the uh, the no news gap. And, you know, that's sort of lame, but the end result is no news at this time of the year is good news. Yeah. I mean, I mean anything that comes out now is bad news. Right, right. It happens all the time in college football. It happens all the time in the NFL. You know, there's no – you're not seeing any trades or free agency or, you know, it's just something pops up. It's someone, you know, someone had a DUI. Somebody – was involved in something they shouldn't have been. Someone's going to be suspended for four games for PEDs. Someone hurt themselves working out, you know, all these different things. So it's the silly season. You just, you know, you'd love to shrink wrap these guys, bubble wrap them and put them away until the first day of training camp. But, you know, players are people too. They live their lives. And unfortunately, you know, bad things happen during downtime. So, yep. And speaking of downtime, what we've got going on for you this week is a quick little preview of what we expect out of the Giants offense this year. Um, you know, the whole team is going to look completely different in terms of the faces on the roster uh, and and the schemes. We, we've got all new coaching staff from top to bottom. So the offense is going to be the first on our chopping block on how we're sort of going to dissect this. <laughs> Yeah, and not only that, I think just you're going to see a different mindset from this team because I think it was pretty apparent as the season went on, this was a team that was not prepared. You know, mindset, physically, game planning, you name it. I think you saw, you know, unfortunately, a coach and a coaching staff that was, you know, in over its head, especially with the head coach, Um, somebody that that wasn't even an offensive coordinator before he became – you know, Associated much less a head Giants. coach. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, you know what you think, you know, but even if you haven't lived through and experienced it, it was very apparent that, you know, forget the, uh, the 11 and five record in 2015 or 2016. This was a very shabby team. I think that's the word I've been trying to come up with for the longest time. What were we, you know, just shabby you know, there, there's talent. You know, don't get us wrong. You know, there's guys like Beckham and there's guys like Eli and there's, you know, the defensive studs we have. But it's just, you know, a collection of bodies that weren't molded into anything. And that's the NFL is too competitive and it's too close that, you know, if you don't have that, if you're not keeping up with the Joneses for mental, physical preparation and conditioning and game planning and game scheming and execution, you're going to be three and 13 very, very quickly. That's what happened. Yeah, and and shabby is one way to put it. You know, I I like to keep something in mind for people. When you look at a team and you're like, God, they are just terrible. That's a terrible team. The difference between the roster on the worst team and the best team isn't really all that massive. I mean, it might be a key position here or there where there's a large jump. Of course, when you go from, I, I don't know, Colt McCoy to Tom Brady, yeah, you can pinpoint a roster – Thing that's separating those two teams and you know say that that's sort of the problem but one of the biggest problems is the, the biggest difference is, is game planning 
And when I looked at the Ben McAdoo New York Giants, it seemed pretty clear that there was little to no game planning even happening, at least on offense. You know, we, we saw no matter who was the starting running back that week, who were the starting wide receivers, who we were playing against, what the pass rush looked like, what the cover guys looked like, it was 11 personnel across the board, quick throws. That was just it. That was the game plan every week. Yeah, so that makes it easier for the other team to game plan against us. So of course, forget yeah. the lack of game planning for us against them. It made it very easy to game plan against us. You used the same tape in week six as you could in week 13 almost. So I agree with you. I, I think the two biggest differences in you know the elite teams and the poor teams are not only game planning and coaching, but it's just you know organizational depth also because all these teams have injuries. It's just when you get hit hard, how can you rebound from it? And, and how know, well prepared are you for that? How you exactly? How flexible is your roster? You know, when you're down to a 53-man roster and a 46 that can suit up each week, you know, you don't have room anymore to have you know six and seven uh, wide receivers or you know guys much more specialists. You need guys who can be hybrids and who can fill in gaps where where you know some one man goes down. You know, you can make some little shuffling and adjustment. You can still have starter quality playing. And I think that was a problem that the Giants, you know, were exposed last. And I think that's, a quest, that's a, uh, one of the major flaws, I think, of Jerry Reese, you know, and the, the problems he had drafting in the lower rounds was we didn't have that organizational depth that we could survive the injury rash. And I don't want to hear, well, our strength, our, our team doctors weren't good or our strength guy was. I mean, everybody gets hurt in this league. Everybody's. Now, some teams have unusual amounts, but, you know, most teams have a fair amount of injuries. It's how can you re- how do you respond to it? And we did not at all last year. Yeah. I mean, of course, there's something to be said when certain players go down. But as you said, I mean, the, the Patriots find a way to win without Julian Edelman, without Gronkowski sometimes. They're always in the hunt. And that's really the difference. Yeah. Well, um, you know. There's different, you know, we weight different positions differently. And, you know, quarterback is obviously the most important. And you have a bedrock guy that's going on now his 18th year. <laughs> that kind of, you know, cures a lot of the sins that you might have for, well, you know, Sure, injury, but I mean, the, team's, the team went 10-6 and six with Matt Castle in 2008. That's I mean, true. They missed the playoffs, but that's a very respectable record. In fact, right. most times that would get you in the playoffs. Yeah, that's true. I mean, they played in a very shitty division for the last decade plus yeah well which which helps i mean you can there's a little bit of stat padding and and record padding by playing in the in the afc east but i i I get your point yeah Yeah. i'll concede that 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 might be three of the most inept franchises in the nfl for for yeah this span of time exactly so moving forward you know we, we can say that the game planning of the ben mcadoo giants was uh, let's let's say subpar and keep this PG. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I think that's one of the things that I want to focus on the most. I mean, I have some stats here. I'm going to kind of go along with the changes in philosophy. But one of the things I want to focus on is that Pat Shermer in general had a way of getting the most out of his players. Uh, I mean, if you were to really put someone like of the caliber of quarterback of Case Keenum and <laughs> Eli Manning next to each other. Uh, I mean, who would you rather roll with? I, you know, I understand Eli's up in ages and whatever, but oh, there's no brainer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and the, the fact that a guy who was a journeyman like Case Keenum 
was suddenly able to lead this team down into the NFC Championship game uh, after two other quarterbacks went down with injury. It, it really just goes to show that Pat Shermer is a guy who is prepared, who is ready for this sort of thing, um, and is able to devise schemes to make to make the offense work because he doesn't. It's, it seems to me anyway that in the, the years of his coaching, he doesn't have a system. He just knows football and how to devise a system for the players he's got. Yeah, I think that's a fair uh, – you see this all the time with, you know, has all of a sudden a guy like a Carson Palmer out of nowhere have a great year or just uh, – you know, there's any number of quarterbacks, you've just seen they've been around and all of a sudden these massive years and you look and see all of a sudden X is the offensive coordinator and got this out of him or Y becomes the head coach. And, you know, if uh, Pat Shermer is that guy, that's going to be huge for this team because guess what? You know, we we one of our themes since the show has started is going to be how are we going to prepare for life after Eli Manning? And, you know, for every time you have a transition from a Brett Favre to an Aaron Rodgers, which is nice and seamless, you have a transition that goes from Phil Simms to Dave Brown to yeah. Kerry Collins to Danny Cannell. Danny Cannell to to Kurt Warner to Eli Manning. So, you know, you're we are not gonna have the next franchise quarterback on a platter for us just to you know, to plug in and go. You know, that that next quarterback might be on the roster right now. It might be both of them might be on the roster. Might not be. You know, their franchise quarterback might still be in high school right now for the New York Giants. We don't know. Um, but having a quarter, having a coach that can adapt to the personnel he has and make it work is huge for the Giants. Not only for right now, but in the intermediate and long term future of the team. Yeah, exactly. Um, and. You know, you see this all the time when, like, uh, a new coordinator comes in and all of a sudden, like, the whole offense changes. And I, I, I mean, like, in terms of star players are leaving because, you know, he just doesn't value that position or something. Or he does the mm-hmm. one-back set. He doesn't do the eye formation. So fullback off the roster. It doesn't matter if you're an all-pro. We didn't really see that with this you know, no. I mean, uh, uh, admittedly, a lot of the uh, skill position players are under rookie contracts, so there's really no reason to to dump any of them. And we did see a bit of a turnover at the offensive line spot, but I mean, I don't even know if that counts as a scheme thing or if it's just a no brainer thing. I think that's just. I think the offensive line is just an upgrade in talent. I mean, yeah. to be very honest, I mean it was. You know, a, a very poor playing, poor unit, and then with the injuries and stuff, you had to really get down to you know guys that may not even be in the NFL playing. So I think that's as much as just an upgrade in talent, and you know maybe some guys that need to shit or get off the pot. You well, know, I don't, like I don't know about that entirely. I mean, we have two offensive linemen who had cashed in on big paydays elsewhere. So you know. There was Justin Pugh was a bit of a hot commodity. Weston Richburg didn't last very long in the open market. Both of them made decent money on the open market. So maybe maybe there was a little bit of a scheme change to the you know less athletic, more. I, I think what the I think what the Giants were doing was they knew they're going to have to probably 
for those two guys probably have to overspend a little bit. And I think they made the decision that these guys weren't worth it for, you know, injury reasons or whatever. Okay. That's, that's, fair. I, 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 I think that if they have the opportunity, they have to spend over what they want to for offensive linemen and offensive linemen are a commodity. They are going to get guys they feel are better investments. And I think just because, well, you've been here before doesn't tip the scales that necessarily in your favor, especially with the turnover in the coaching staff and, you know, the modifications, of the offense going forward. That's, that's totally fair. Uh, I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit about, I, I, I grabbed some stats from the 2017 Minnesota Vikings and the 2016 New York Giants, because I felt that that more emphasized who Ben McAdoo was at his core, you know, when the team was fully healthy and, you know, winning games. I mean, they, if they weren't winning games, they were at least in them for all, but maybe two in the Minnesota and Green Bay. Um, it, and I think that that's a fair comparison of what we are getting versus what we're used to versus okay. last year, which was sort of just a wash since like week five. Yeah. Um, You know, we're going to see a bit more of a balanced attack here. So one of the things I noticed is that in 2017, the regular season only, Minnesota balanced 526 passes with 448 rushes. So that's that's pretty close. Um, the 2016 New York Giants, not as much. I'm sure you're all surprised. 598 passes to 373 rushes. Um, well, well, the first thing that jumps off that page is, again, <laughs> who was our running back core back then, too? Well, pretty, sub- pretty substandard. You know... That is true, but I'm not going to sing praises of Jarek McKinnon and Latavius Murray either. That's true. Um, I mean, and I know that they the, – the, the plan is the, – the thing is when they draft a guy like Dalvin Cook and he was having the year he was having up until week five or week four when he got injured, uh, you know, there was an emphasis that they were going to not only run the ball – but throw passes to running backs out of the backfield. So in mm-hmm. in 2017, Minnesota threw to running backs 77 times for an average of 7.9 yards. That's pretty ridiculous. Again, that's also something that Ben McAdoo liked to do, um, albeit out of different formations. Uh, you know, they're decently similar numbers. 81 passes for 7.5 yards. Not quite as effective. Um, but I, I mean, think the pro. But the problem with that, that that's muted a little bit by the lack of a vertical game. Yeah, it basically became the bread and butter play almost. It was like, quick, get, let's get the ball out of Eli's hands as fast as possible, fastest targets to a, a leaking running back or something. Well, I mean, that's that's perfect segue into what I'm going to do next. So, you know, that's that was if I if I could surmise Ben McAdoo's offensive scheme in one sentence, it's get rid of the ball quickly before Eli gets slammed. Um, yeah. In Minnesota, what we had was obviously a more balanced attack led to a more effective play action. But, you know, we can say it'd be more effective, but the fact is that they cashed in on it. They think ranked third in the league last year in passing yards off of play action with 1,200. It's pretty pretty mm. ridiculous. Um, and especially when you consider you've got a guy like Case Keenum throwing to guys like Adam Thielen and Stefan Diggs. You know, both, they're not scrubs, but... If I had to put them up next to Odell Beckham and Sterling Shepard, I'd be much happier knowing that that same system is going to these guys. Let me ask you something. Would you have Stefan Diggs ranked ahead of um, Sterling Shepard in your depth chart with the Giants? I mean, I don't know. I don't know. So 
coming out of college, Stefan Diggs had a knock on him that he was only going to be able to play on the inside due to height and strength concerns, right? And that's mm-hmm. sort of what we've seen from Sterling Shepard is that he fell to the second round for the same reason. Shifty mm-hmm. guy, nimble, jumps up to get it, all those sort of things you want, but just he's only 5'11". He's not very strong. So for me, it's sort of like comparing apples to apples because – they are the same receiver, but we have one coach who decided to play him on the outside and one coach who kept him on the inside. So I don't know. I mean, if you were to bring them both in here, I would say half the time you'd have Diggs and Beckham on the outside with Shepard in the slot. I don't really mm-hmm. know how Shepard's going to handle the outside or if he even will. Mm-hmm. I would think with a guy like Ingram on the roster that he's going to be handling a lot of outside duty when they want three wide receivers. Gotcha. That would, that would be my thought. But it, it, to answer your question more directly, I would say it's really close. Um, in fact, there was a pro football focus stat for effectiveness winning contested catches. Ranked number one was Stefan Diggs, and less than a percentage point below him was Sterling Shepard ranked at number two. Gotcha. Gotcha. So it's really close. I mean, and I don't think we really need to have a discussion about whether we'd have Thielen or Beckham, right? Oh, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> I think we're pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I know that the averages of the passing to running backs came out pretty close between the 2017 Vikings and the 2016 Giants. But what I found more alarming was that Jarek McKinnon had nearly 1,000 all-purpose r- yards, right? Um, mm-hmm. Rashad Jennings had about 795. So, I, you know... I think McKinnon might be a little bit better than Jennings. I think that the scheme helped open up those passes to running backs a lot more. Um, And I think he was also a little bit more effective on the ground because there was more emphasis on the ground game. So I think we're going to see... I mean, I know we'd all hope so, but I think we're going to see a heavy dose of Saquon Barkley coming out of the backfield and running it up the gut. Absolutely. I think... I, I Again... We'll have to see how this kind of develops during training camp and preseason and everything. But I really think this is going to be an offense that's going to emphasize the run first and setting up the passing game as opposed to the opposite. I think they're going to, I think they use this guy as the complete workhorse, you know, 20, 25 carries at least per game. Maybe 10 catches per game too. Yeah, exactly. And that's just, and I think that's ultimately going to make it, you know, a deadly passing game. If you can, you know, open up that defense a little bit, shake it a little loose, as opposed to, well, just double-team uh, Beckham every play and everything and worry about the passing game and not worry about such an anemic running game. As, I, as I've thought about it, if to defend against a single-back set with Saquon Barkley, you'd have to have an extra guy load the box probably, right? Um, mm-hmm. But he has to be able to cover him if he leaks out into the backfield, which, you know, then then you're sort of opening up one-on-ones, not just for Beckham, who we know can burn even the best corners with his route running, but also Evan Ingram, who's got the speed and size to really rip apart the middle of a defense. Um, So I'm really thinking that it's going to lean very heavily on Barkley early on in the game, Mm -hmm. and the points are really going to get accumulated on the big play. Yeah. And uh, I I think we're going to see... Not just yeah. Beckham, too. Like I think we're going to see some spreading of the ball, forcing that double coverage to figure out who the target is on the formation. 
And that's also, I think, that's something like that Eli does best is the big play and the big, uh, you know, he's most effective throwing downfield than he is in this short little passing game. So it's just going to make him do what he does best more effective. Exactly. And that that's right where I was going with that. So, you know, I know that Eli is advancing in years and I know that the offensive line was garbage so that we instituted a system with the quick passes. And I get that. And you can make a case for that. And I'm fine with that. But when it comes to getting the most out of your guys, this is what Eli does best. Eli doesn't care if he throws 25 interceptions in a year if the team goes 11-5. and He's not interested in his own personal stats. He will throw downfield to make a big play to win the game. You know, he likes to push the ball deep. And this is what we saw when Ben McAdoo was the coordinator and Tom Coughlin was the head coach. We saw that continued you know, play action, deep ball. To that point, the the other jarring difference between the 2016 Giants, who, by the way, despite an 11-5 record, were not any sort of offensive juggernaut, um, and the 2017 Vikings, I the interception total was double for the Giants. And, you know, one of the selling points on the Ben McAdoo system was an increased completion percentage, right? And minimizing the turnovers. And, you know... Sure, we can shrug some of these interceptions off on Manning because it's just who he is, whatever. But I think the fact is that it just didn't work that way. Mm -hmm. We weren't really a more potent offense under the Ben McAdoo head coach versus the Ben McAdoo offensive coordinator, you know, with with Tom Coughlin. In fact, we were putting up almost 30 points a game with McAdoo as OC and Tom Coughlin as head coach versus – you know, 2016 Giants, I'm not sure how many points per game it was, but it had to be less than 17. Yeah, well, I think a lot of that, too, is I think that, you know, him trying to learn, both, do both jobs at the same time, him play calling in addition to being head coach, I think you kind of start burying yourself in the minute details of the play calling, too. Yeah. So, and I think also, you know, the offensive line was horrific in 2016 as well as 2017 and the corresponding no uh, running game any of the year, this team did not score points in bunches. They had a grind for, for points and that, you know, the teams that score, you know, the big, you know, the big points per game is they can score like that 80 yard play, boom, touchdown. Yeah. You know, defense causes a turnover deep in territory, boom, touchdown. We didn't really get that, you know, in the last couple of years. And, you know, the lack of, you know, a lack of a big target in the end zone. Those things hurt. The lack of a real push on the offensive line in the red zone makes it tough to run. You know, lack of having that big bruising running back two pounded in from three yards in. You know, red zones were, they were a grind, you know. And a lot of times, and that's where you saw some of these interceptions by Eli, like you mentioned before, where he's trying to force things to make things happen. And the decision-making might be better from him when he has more confidence and better talent around him, both blocking for him and weapons that he can go to. I mean, just having Barkley alone is changes everything in, 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 within five yards. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I think this is sort of the final point I have. You know, a lot of people don't like the contract that Jonathan Stewart got and the fact that he's on the roster and that was sort of made a priority. And, you know, we can quibble over the details of his contract. I'm not really interested in that because uh, I'm not an accountant, so what do I care? <laughs> but I think the purpose is going to be, you know, 
Barkley played at Penn State last year. I know he was an all-purpose back, and he was, you know, back there for 